Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray you'll open your hearts. Lord, you know the word that I feel you've laid on my heart is quite a sobering word, uh, and I feel very relevant to these times. Lord, both uh, in the culmination of history and also in what your word says. So I do pray for open hearts and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I'm going to ask you five questions to begin with. And um, I won't ask you for answers from the floor, but maybe think about them in your head. See, see if you uh, have answers to these particular questions, because they're all relevant to what I'm going to speak about. First of all, what is the only geographical area God describes in the Bible as the apple of his eye? Next, with whom did the Lord make the new covenant? Next, which nation does God promise will not permanently disappear in his eyes? Even though, here's a clue, it disappeared off the map for centuries. And the two sobering ones, and I'm going to be concentrating on these in the talk, what's the most enduring racial hatred in the world? And what warning does Paul give to the Roman church in chapter 11 of his epistle to that church? Interesting questions. Very relevant, I feel. First one we can deal with quite quickly. Zechariah 2.8 says that God describes Zion, or Jerusalem, sometimes used as symbol for the whole of Israel, as the apple of his eye, that geographical area. He cares about it greatly. The new covenant. Well, we are grafted into the new covenant, but it wasn't originally given to us. I'm speaking to us Gentiles here, maybe one or two Jews in the audience. The Gentiles are grafted in to the new covenant, which was given to the following. Behold, the days are coming. This is Jeremiah 31, 31. Says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant, that's the new heart, the new spirit within, the Holy Spirit within, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What about this uh, nation that would never disappear in his eyes? Well, let's have a look at this. Obviously, I'm talking about Jews and Gentiles this morning, particularly the Christian church and the Jews, how it has and should treat the Jews. Help if I switch it on, wouldn't it? Let's try again. There we go. This is Jeremiah 31, verses 35 to uh, 36. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and the waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Paraphrasing it, if you don't see the sun and you don't see the stars and you don't hear the waves roaring, then God's finished with Israel. But if you hear them and you see them, he hasn't. And although it disappeared from AD 70s to 1948, now back in the land, in God's eyes, it's always there because of his covenant purposes. What about this hatred? Well, I think you know the answer to that one. Uh, Anti-Semitism has been around almost since the dawn of history. Some people say it's a bit of a misnomer because um, Semitism is taken from the son of Noah, Shem. Both the Jews and the Arabs descended from Shem. 
So some say, more accurate term, would be Jew hatred. I'm, I'm going to use the term anti-Semitism, though, as it's understood. Now, I'm not going to give you a history of it in the Old Testament, but it's there, right through. I mean, Exodus 1, where the new Pharaoh wants to wipe out all the male children, and Moses is saved. Uh, the enemies, such as the Amalekites and the Philistines, that wanted to wipe the Jews off the map, Israel off the map. Listen to this from Psalm 83. Those who hate you, says the psalmist, have lifted up their head. They said, come, let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. And there are nations and powers out there at the moment that want to do that. For they've consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. And he's speaking to God. They're, they're out. They're against you. And it goes on there's so much. I mean, there's a little book called Obadiah that I don't think I've ever heard preached in a church. But that is solely a condemnation and judgment upon the Edomites. That's the descendants of Esau. For the way they treated the Jews appallingly and wanted to see them dead. Uh, Edom, sometimes referred to Mount Seir in the Bible, Ezekiel 35.5, talks about their ancient or perpetual hatred, ongoing. And they weren't the only nation like that. And there are some nations like that today. The book of Esther, I don't know if you know, it doesn't mention the name of God once. Yet, God's purposes are right there throughout it. Not the purpose of Haman, though. Haman, the king's official, Medes and Persians' king's official, wanted to wipe the Jews out and thought he'd invented a method of doing it. God used Esther and Mordecai in particular to save them. So let's talk about uh, some passage in Scripture, and then I'm going to talk about some history because I think it's highly relevant. But uh, Paul, in Romans 11, uh, gives a warning to that particular church. Now, it's important we get a bit of background here. What had happened was, in AD 49, the emperor, the Roman emperor Claudius, evicted the Jews from Rome. They were kicked out. And we know this from historical records. We also know it from Acts 18, because in Corinth, Paul comes across Priscilla and Aquila, fellow tent makers and brother and sister in the Lord, and that's exactly what had happened to them. They had left Rome. So what happened, the Roman church had been founded by Jews who'd come out from Jerusalem, from Israel. They'd founded it. They then got kicked out. The church continued as a Gentile church. But what happened was, five years later, Nero, the next emperor, decided to bring the Jews back, probably for economic reasons. And guess what? They were not given an open arms welcome. Far, far from it. The Gentiles in the church had begun to look down upon the Jews that had founded the church. So much so that Paul actually begins chapter 11 by actually saying this. Has God cast away his people? In other words, is he finished with the Jews? Is he finished with Israel? <laughs> Certainly not. Or by no means, as some translations say. He then goes on in the next part of that passage to say, look, through hardness of heart and unbelief, yes, many, many Jews had cut themselves on from the Lord, off from the Lord. But God has always preserved a remnant. And he gives example of that. God preserved the remnant of belief. Now, don't forget that the church was founded by Jews. The day of Pentecost, that was a Jewish church. 
He then goes on, and he's talking to this Roman church, and particularly talking to the Gentiles in it. And he says the following, Romans 11 to 12, have they stumbled that they should fall, the Jews? Certainly not. There it is again. <laughs> Emphasising this. Through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation's come to the Gentiles. The gospel went to you then. That's why it happened. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? So when they come back to the Lord in a big way, which I believe they will, as we lead up to the Lord's return and at his return, wow, what a day that will be. I speak to you Gentiles, says Paul, going on, inasmuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. That's my job. I magnify my ministry. Why? So I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. In other words, they might see what I've got in Jesus and what we have in Jesus, and they might want to come back to the Messiah, Yeshua. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? I think that ultimately is looking forward to the time in the future when the Lord Jesus returns and he will reign from Jerusalem and Israel will be chief among the nations. And then he goes on and he gets quite sober here. And it's a passage I don't think I've ever heard preached before, but all scripture is given of God. So let's have a look at this, see what we can learn from it in these days. I think this is important. says, that's a olive tree. And sorry, the print's a little bit smaller on this one. If some of the branches were broken off, and he's talking about Jews that had rejected their Lord, and you, Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, put into the olive tree, and with them became partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, you benefit from that, don't boast against the branches. Don't look down on them. Don't be arrogant. Don't rejoice in their cutting off. If you boast, remember that you don't support the roots, says Paul, but the root supports you. That is a Jewish olive tree, he's saying to them. And earlier, they should have known this, he actually said to them, this is Romans 9, to them, that's the Jews, and we can't deny this, and we should rejoice in it, to them belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, to the Jews initially. The covenants, the giving of the law, the Torah, Moses, the worship, the promises. To the land belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And from them, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah who is God over all, blessed forever. Let's not forget, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, Paul here is arguing that the Gentile church hasn't replaced Israel. On the contrary, says, there's a lot of teaching around today that it has. No, no. It's been grafted into the original olive tree of Israel after the branches of unbelieving Israel have been cut off. It's well known, by the way, that when an olive tree is producing badly, no fruit, a slip of a wild olive tree can be grafted onto it and it gives new vigour to the tree. And he's saying, this is what's happened to you Gentiles. And he continues, you'll say then, look, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, true. Because of unbelief they were broken off, not all of them, but many resisted 
You stand by faith. Don't be haughty, he says. Don't be arrogant about this. Be fear, be, rev- fear, be reverent. For if God, and this is sobering, if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you. Therefore consider the goodness or kindness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity. But towards you, goodness, kindness, if you continue in his goodness. And by God's grace and the keeping power, believers in Jesus do. Otherwise, he says, you will also be cut off. Now, I would say any individual that's harboring hatred towards the Jewish race in their heart is working directly against the Spirit of God. I'd say that first of all. But I believe the context of this passage, he's talking to the Roman church and he's giving them a warning that if you continue in this arrogance towards the Jews, you will be cut off as a church from fellowship with the Lord. Don't do it. Did they listen? Well, they might have listened in the short term, but in the longer term, they didn't listen. Because we know that um, after Rome embraced Christianity under the Emperor Constantine and onwards into the time of the Roman Catholic Church, that area of the Roman Church became a major persecutor of the Jews, worse in fact than the pagan empress. It was that severe. So they did actually cut themselves off from the Holy Spirit as a church. It then says, they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in the Jews. For God's able to graft them in again. The unbelieving Jews out there today, God's able to graft them in again. And there's many messianic congregations growing up in Israel. But as the Lord returns, there'll be a massive revival. For you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, you Gentiles, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these who are the natural branches, the Jews, be grafted into their own olive tree? It's theirs. And then he finishes almost at this passage. (laughs) Don't be ignorant of this mystery. Lest you be wise in your own opinion. Don't be arrogant. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But all Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. Now, some were saved at the first coming. But the final fulfillment of this will be at his second coming. When Jesus returns to Zion, he will return to the Mount of Olives. Who turn ungodliness away from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them. And I'm not arguing, by the way, at the moment, Israel is a godly nation. It's not. It's much to commend it. It's the only democracy out there. But it's not a godly nation yet. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, he says, and this was true at his time, most of them are enemies for your sake. But concerning election, God's purposes, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. God has a covenant with them. And this verse here, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. What he's saying is, God's not going to change his commitment to his ancient people. Unfortunately, many church leaders soon at that time departed from Paul's teaching and that of the other apostles. So Hippolytus of Rome, second, third century, a major uh, Christian leader, listen to this, he taught that as killers of Jesus, the Jews were eternally cut off, and down through history, in fact, many Jews have been killed under the accusation they're Christ killers. And people like him said they were the ones that killed the Christ. Now, Just think about that. If you read history, you'll find this term Christ killer was often used as a justification to kill Jewish communities in history. It is true that uh, the Jewish religious leaders, most of them, 
stirred up the crowd outside Pilate's judgment seat to call for the crucifixion of Jesus. That is true. It's also true, by the way, that who actually crucified Jesus? Gentile Roman soldiers. Who was responsible for that? Pilate, a Gentile Roman leader. Oh, why did Jesus die? For our sins, Gentiles and Jews. Who was behind the death of Jesus? It was the will of the Lord to bruise him, Isaiah 53 says, for our sins. And what about Jesus? No one takes my life from me, he said. I lay it down of my own accord. So for Jews to be killed down the centuries for this is just atrocious. I'm going to go into a bit of history now because it's relevant. And I warn you, it's sobering. I'll be careful how much of it I cover, but I think it's highly relevant in the time that anti-Semitism in the world is rising again. So let's just take a couple of examples of church leaders. Chrysostom, Bishop of Constantinople, Constantinople, 345 to 405, known as Golden Mouth because of his exceptional oratory skills. What did he say? The Jews are inveterate murderers, destroyers, men possessed of the devil. He taught that the Jews were so hated by God that Christians ought to, quote, hate them and long for their blood. Is that the Holy Spirit? St. Augustine, roughly the same time. Judas, that's Iscariot, is the image of the Jewish people. They bear the guilt for the death of the Saviour, for through their fathers they killed the Christ. So from that time onwards, and what was happening in the Roman uh, church, the so-called Christian nations of Europe went full-on in their Jew hatred. And the history is awful. Church popes, bishops, church councils, Christian emperors, only a few exceptions, produced persecution, outbreaks, kidnapping of Jewish children so they could be raised by Christians. That happened for years in Spain. Forced baptisms and conversions, seizure of property, banning of Jews from occupations, enslavement, wholesale ma massacres. More modern times, you think of the pogroms in Russia. What about the Crusades? I remember learning about the Crusades when I was a kid, Richard the Lionheart. Was it to uh, liberate Jerusalem from Muslim rule? Well, yes, but did you know this? The leader of the First Crusade, 1096, Godfrey de Bouillon, said he would avenge the blood of Christ on Israel and leave no member of the Jewish race alive. Those involved in the First Crusade, heading out there, through the Danube and Rhine valleys, slaughtered whole Jewish communities. When they arrived in Jerusalem in July 1099, they found what Jews they could, put them in a synagogue, set fire to them, marching round it, singing, Christ, we adore you. Was that the Holy Spirit? What about England? How did we fare? I don't know if you know that we expelled the Jews in 1290, Edward I. They only returned in the 1650s under Oliver Cromwell. The Puritans, by the way, were an exception. They loved the Jews, but they were an exception. There was a lie that happened in England and other European countries called the blood libel. If a child would disappear or die unexpectedly, but normally disappear, they would say the Jews had kidnapped them and used their blood in their Passover bread. And whole Jewish communities were killed. For instance, Munich, the entire Jewish community in the 13th century was killed, 180 of them, because of that lie. But that lie was endemic. Jews were blamed for the Black Death because many of them did not die and others were dying. Right across Germany and France, Christian communities slaughtered many of them. Why did the Jews not die? It wasn't sorcery. They weren't causing the plague, as they were accused of. 
they followed the Levitical laws about dead bodies and how to deal with bodies with plague. Therefore, they were kept safe where others weren't. Uh, in some parts uh, of Europe in the Middle Ages, they were made to wear uh, identifying marks on their clothing. In France, in fact, it was a yellow oval. Does that remind you of a later group that did the same thing? You might say, yeah, yeah, but um, the Spanish Inquisition, what about that? Well, that was um, a time where Jews were forced to convert or they were kicked out of the country. And if they falsely converted, they were tortured and killed. You might say, well, look, look, that was all the Catholic Church. Protestants were okay, weren't they? Well, let's just take the two major reformers. Now, Martin Luther, in the early part of his ministry of the conversion, did great things, didn't he? He translated the Bible into German, broke this lie about works being his way to salvation rather than grace. Fantastic. Not so fantastic about the Jews. He wrote a book or pamphlet called On the Jews of Their Lies, 1543, in which he posed the question, what shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? Here it is. This is his recommendations. Set fire to their synagogues or schools. Their houses be razed and destroyed. Rabbis forbidden to teach on pain of loss of life and limb. Safe conducts on the highways be abolished completely for them. Driven like mad dogs out of the land. Throw a brimstone and pitch upon them. If one could throw hellfire at them, so much the better. Next to the devil, a Christian has no more bitter and galling foe than the Jews. We're at fault in not slaying them. Goodness me. He wrote uh, another pamphlet called The Ineffable Name about the Jews' name for God. And it's actually so bad what he said, I'm not even going to quote it here. Calvin, another great reformer. He didn't have much to do with the Jews because they'd been exiled from Geneva 70 years earlier. But nevertheless, in 1560, he wrote this about the Jews. Their rotten and unbending stiff-neckedness deserves that they be oppressed unendingly without measure or end and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. Goodness me. Now, just briefly before I get to the conclusion, I can't go through the consequences of a lot of this hatred without mentioning something that was remembered just over a week ago, which was the Holocaust. The Jews prefer to call it the Shoah, the destruction. Um, Raoul Hilberg, who was a historian of the European Holocaust, said that through the Christian countries, so-called, through the centuries, there were three phases of what happened to the Jews. The first phase was you can't live among us as Jews. Okay? You, you, so very early on, Constantine and others, they stopped Jewish festivals, they changed the Sabbath, they cut out a lot of reference to Jewish holy days, etc. You can't live among us as Jews. The second stage was you can't live among us. In other words, we're kicking you out. And the third stage, which the Nazis did, is you can't live. Now, the Nazis weren't Christians, let's be clear. A lot of them were into the occult. But Germany at that time was almost equally split between Protestants and Catholics. There were hundreds and hundreds of churches. Very few, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was an exception, made objections to what happened. Luther's On the Jews of their, and Their Lies was actually a blueprint, it seems, for what happened in 1938 on the 9th or 10th November, just before the outbreak of the Second World War, where the German Nazis tested what the population reaction was on crystal nacht, the light of the broken glass. At night, there 
were riots inspired by the Nazis, murders of Jews, lootings, beatings, destructions of synagogues, Jewish property and Jewish cemeteries desecrated. What was the reaction? Well, not much against it. But the following from the Bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, Martin Sass, who applauded the burning of the synagogues, saying, I rejoice that on November the 10th, on Luther's birthday, the synagogues are burning in Germany. And he said, you ought to heed the words of the greatest anti-Semite of his time, Martin Luther, whose works were displayed uh, on the Jews and their lives at the rallies in Nuremberg. Now, we know tragically that of the 9 million Jews in Europe, 9 million in occupied Europe at the time, uh, 6 million died between 41 and 45, two-thirds of all the Jews. The first 1.5 million uh, died at the hands of what known as the Einsatzgruppen, the Nazi death squads, as the Germans invaded countries and pushed eastwards and westwards, um, particularly eastwards. Um, behind their soldiers were these death squads, and their job was to kill the Jews, to shoot men, women, and children at close range. What astonished even the Nazis was how many of the local populations of countries such as Lithuania, Latvia, Ukraine, Belarusia, Romania, and Hungary joined in enthusiastically to help out. Uh, one could get lost in figures. See that lovely mother there with her children? She is one of the thousand Jews of a place called Lubny in Ukraine. They were taken out of the city on October 16th, 1941. May have thought they were going to be exiled. They weren't. They were shot within hours of that picture being taken. Then, of course, you know, following on from that, it got industrial. The six major death camps, Auschwitz-Birkenau, killing over a million, three million Pol Polish Jews. Just to show you how much, how satanic this was, and I use that word deliberately, Jew-hated is satanic. It's against the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul taught about it in Romans 11. In 1944, Germany was losing the war. Everyone knows they were heading for defeat. The Americans and their allies, the British and the others, were all back on the continent. Nevertheless, in Hungary, the Nazis under Adolf Eichmann uh, decided to try to kill all their Jews. They transported over two months, just two months, think about this, by train, 424,000 Jews to Auschwitz. It's just a staggering number. And they arrive at Auschwitz. Men and women and children, and I'm sad to say, those in the pictures would be dead within hours. What hatred? Where's it come from? It's satanic. It's against the Holy Spirit. Look at those two dear brothers. What have they done? What was their crime? They were Jewish. So it's no wonder, is it, that um, sometimes, I mean, I, I, I had some, as a head teacher, some Jewish parents, and I taught RS, and sometimes when I was taught to them, and I obviously taught about Christianity, I, 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 I sensed a sort of drawing away. Uh, why would that be? Well, let's just listen to what a rabbi said. And this is a shameful thing, something the church needs to repent of. And I know this church, Glenda Graham, as your pastor, you love the Jews, you love Israel. Just think how a rabbi thinks about all of this. This is a rabbi called Shuli Boteak in a book called Kosher Jesus. And you can understand this now, can't you? Growing in an, up in an Orthodox Jewish household, I held great antipathy towards Jesus. <laughs> Which Jesus? The real Jesus, or the one portrayed by the hatred I've outlined, the one Paul 
warned about going against, warned against going against in Romans 11. The very name reminded me of suffering Christians laid upon Jewish communities for 2,000 years. Persecutions, false conversions, expulsions, inquisitions, false accusations, degradations, economic exile, taxation, pogroms, stereotyping, ghettoization, and systematic extermination. All this incomprehensible violence against us and against our friends and families committed in the name of a Jew in my neighbourhood who didn't even mention his name. Now, isn't that appalling? But understanding. And it's because Jesus and the love of Jesus for Jews was misrepresented to them. <laughs> there were exceptions. And I'm going to give you one that I think was wonderful as I draw towards a close. 80% um, of Greece's 70,000 Jews died in the Second World War. There was an island called Zakynthos. And uh, the mayor of Zakynthos, Lucas Caro, in 1944, was instructed by the Nazis to hand over a list of the 275 Jews on the island, to list them so the Nazis could round them up, take them off and kill them. Uh, the list was eventually presented to the Germans by Bishop Chrysostomus. So Bishop Chrysostomus and Lucas Caro were responsible for this. On the name were, on the list were 275 names? No. On the list were two names. That of the bishop and that of the mayor. The bishop said to the Germans, here are your Jews. If you choose to deport the Jews of Zakynthos, take me and I'll share their fate. What happened to the Jews? They'd take them up into the mountains and hid, where they were hidden by the villagers up in the mountains. Astonishingly, all 275 Jews survived. Isn't that wonderful? There were others who showed great faith, but they were a minority. On the whole, Christian Europe and the churches were silent. So what's the relevance as I draw to a close? Well, anti-Semitism is on the rise again. Do you know last year the United Nations had more condemnation resolutions against Israel than the rest of the world put together? What? The only democracy in the Middle East? Not perfect, we know, but what's going on there? Well, I ask you. We don't need discernment. Anti-Semitism is on the rise in British universities, often under the cover of hatred of Israel or Zionism. Uh, surrounding Israel are groups that want to wipe them off the face of the earth. If you read what's preached in Iran, if you read the constitution of Hamas, in Gaza Strip, Hezbollah in Lebanon, their constitutions say, let's wipe Israel off the map. It's out there. The Lord said in Zechariah 12:2, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering amongst the nations. Well, it's true. Can you think of a more controversial city out there than Jerusalem? It also says in Zechariah 14 that when the Lord returns, he will rescue Israel from attack from the surrounding nations. Why am I sharing this with you? Because in the future, the scriptures teach that both Christians and Jews will endure persecution. This time, I hope that the church will stand with the Jews because we owe so much to them. All the 12 disciples were Jewish. The Bible was written by Jewish authors possible exception of Luke. We owe so much to them. Our saviour is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Let's remember what was said to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. And that is our uh, 
responsibility, our duty, and it should be our joy. Let's just finish with a couple of other scriptures. Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. <coughs> pray for the Jews. I don't know whether you've met any, but even if you don't, pray for them. The most persecuted race in the world. When Jesus was rejected by most of the Jews when he came to Jerusalem, not all of them, he said, and this is his heart, how often, O Jerusalem, I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And he said, trouble was heading their way. Then he said this, I say to you, you shall see me no more, Jerusalem, till you say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, that is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there is the hope. Jesus our Lord <coughs> is coming back. He's coming back to reign. He's coming back to resurrect us. One generation will be raptured. He's coming back to rule from Jerusalem. And he's coming back eventually also to take us to a new heaven and new earth. And the last prayer in the Bible is, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Because when he comes, at that time, all Israel will be saved. And we Gentiles, who are now part of that Jewish olive tree, will be able to rejoice. Amen. I'm going to uh, sing now.